Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Evolutionary speaking, our brains are still designed for this ancient world, this cave, caveman-like world. And so inevitably, we get triggered by fear in anything and everything because our brain's not designed for this complex, this modern complex world. So any little thing that happens, you know, a, a computer can appear to be as threatening as a saber-toothed tiger, which is what our brain is still looking at. Okay, how can we survive? And that's why we do things like what's called a negativity bias, for example, where we focus more on what we don't have than what we do have. You know, and studies have shown people will, people will do well, people will experience more pain at the loss of fifty dollars than joy at the desire, you know, at the at the prospect of gaining fifty dollars. Because negative, you know, evolutionary speaking, we want to be more focused on the potential threat, the saber tooth tiger or this thing around that's killing us. Because if we miss a beautiful sunset, no big deal, there'll be another one the next day, right? But if we don't miss this, if we miss this threat, we could die and there'll be no more sunsets at all. So, so coming from that perspective, that fear is this very primal emotion that we're always having to deal with, and we have to realize that we don't control what first shows up in the brain. So neurologically. Speaking, Speaking, you know, as I mentioned, there's this emotional brain and there's the rational brain. We don't control what first shows up in the emotional parts of a brain. So if I'm standing on the edge of a cliff and I feel fear, that's just my brain responding to this edge of the cliff, right? And the value in learning this is that we stop that this allows us to stop judging our emotions. The biggest myth and what led to this concept of fear von and why I wanted to tackle fear is that we often hear things like be fearless, don't be scared of anything, you know, uh, eliminate self doubt, and all these things that tell people not to feel the emotion that they're feeling. But they are no bad or good emotions. They're only emotions, and it's up to us to decide what we do with them. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Akshay, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was introduced to you by way of our uh, mutual friend, Jamal Yogis, who is uh, a surfer and author who in many ways inspired a lot of my earlier work. Uh, And he told me a little bit about what you did and uh, told me about your work and your book. And I was just immediately fascinated by the entire story. So I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? So my dad worked for 3M for 27 years. He, uh, uh, we moved around a lot. As a result of that, we moved from Bombay to Bangalore in, in India. And then when I was eight, I moved to Singapore. At the age of 13, then I moved from Singapore to Austin, Texas. And really my journey with, through fear and everything began began kind of in that phase of my life because it, it was in Austin, Texas. But yeah, to answer your question, though, is my, my, my father had a, a corporate job 27 years with 3M and that took us all over the world. Hmm. So why did the journey uh, of fear begin at 13 years old in Austin, Texas? 
So when I, at about a year after moving to Austin, I ended up, well, I got into drugs pretty heavily. Um, for about a year and a half, I squandered away my life with drugs, with alcohol. I lost two friends to drug addiction as well. And I was very much headed down that path. I was easily, the, I was the first person in the group to start going from marijuana to harder drugs. And, you know, I was the kind of person who was pushing the limits in that way. Now I do it through more positive ways, but I was doing it through drugs at the time. And, uh, and you know, like I said, I lost two friends, but I, I thankfully found a way out of that life by watching the movie Black Hawk Down. Have uh-huh. you ever seen the movie? Uh, you know what? I have a long time ago. It's a very powerful war movie. It's a war movie based on a true story. And watching that movie just triggered something in me that like what kind of courage would it take to sacrifice your life for your fellow human beings to put everything on the line for them? And it just really made me question this meaningless, uh, selfish existence I was living. And I still remember right after the movie, I went and uh, dropped my friend off. He had the book Black Hawk Down. I read the book and I started reading book after book on military and combat. And, uh, and almost overnight, stopped doing drugs and decided to join the Marines, which, uh, which presented its own challenge, not just in terms of my parents, but also because of health reasons. So I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me Marine Corps boot camp would kill me. So I had to sort of fight my way into the Marines, which took about a year and a half as well once I made the decision to join. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, there's no way we're going to get out of this without talking about your parents. Um, you <laughs> right. know, both yeah. of us being of Indian descent. Like I, uh-huh. I, I remember when I first got the emails, like how the hell did an Indian guy end up in the Marines? <laughs> Not only that, I mean, you know, being a hardcore drug user, you know, like not to stereotype, but that is probably not the average Indian, you know, Indian American boy. Um, yep. <laughs> so one, you know, what did that, what kind of dynamic did that create with your parents? Because it's such a, a, a it's, you know, it's it, in my mind, such an anomaly. Granted, I have friends who've done their fair share of drugs or Indian, but, um, you know, not at that age. I absolutely know what you mean, and uh, and yeah, and totally relate. I mean, I feel bad. I've put my parents through hell. I've been a nightmare of a child. Hopefully now they can be proud of me, but <laughs> it was not easy for them. I mean, I got caught smoking weed in school. Uh, I got arrested when I was, I think, 17 for lighting a microwave on fire, and we wow. got sent to jail. Have you ever seen the movie Office Space? Uh-huh. You know, where they beat the fax machine? Me and yeah. my friends were inspired by that, and we decided to do it through a microwave and uh, took it to an empty culture sack, lit it on fire, hit it, and we got sent to jail. So you can imagine how how much my parents or how happy they were when they had to pick me up from jail the next morning. Um, <laughs> so they were in a really tough place because when I wanted to join, you know, I was I was not even a U.S. citizen at the time. And this was post 9-11 world. So almost inevitably, I would be going to war at some point. And they said, you know, they were like, why are you joining? This is not your country. What are you going to go serve, you know, fight somebody else's war? But at the same time, they were in this other dichotomy because I just got out of this world of drugs, right? And they were like, is this path, is this the path to his salvation? So it was a... Uh, I mean, it was really, really challenging them for, for them. We put it, we went through a lot of battles, but at that point I knew that this is what I had to do. And I mean, it hasn't been easier since then. You know, when I was in Iraq, I rarely shared this, but, um, when I was in Iraq, my mom, my mom really struggled, and she almost died just from not being able to sleep and sleeping pills and stuff like that. So she really struggled um, when I was out there, and so it's been kind of hard ever since. I think now that they're proud of how it's how you know how it's all turned out and what I'm doing and the impact I'm hoping to make in the world. But uh, at the time, it was definitely a lot, a lot of fights, a lot of battles. Again, those two doctors told me boot camp would kill me, right? So I had to navigate that fight with them. And but at that at that point, I knew that this is exactly who I wanted to be and what I what I wanted to do. So I think even after. Coming, coming out of boot camp, they came to Marine Corps boot camp to you know see me graduate. They were shocked because I came out and I was like 125 pounds. They couldn't believe that I was – I mean they didn't even recognize me. But I think they started to see what it was doing to me and, and they felt proud that I was at least doing something more meaningful than that other life that I was leading with just a, you know, a selfish, meaningless lifestyle on drugs. So it wasn't easy though. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like – do you have siblings? I do. I have one older brother. 
Okay. And- Falls apart. <laughs> we are 180. He had he didn't get into drugs. He didn't do any of that. And, you know, uh, he was like the smart guy. I'm like the street smart guy. He was a book smart guy. I mean, we are just a 180 in every way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what kind of dynamic did that create with uh, your sibling? And how did having a sibling like that influence the dynamic with your parents? To be honest with you, we weren't really that close that I guess I'd never thought about in terms of, I mean, he was just watching me get caught doing everything you could possibly imagine <laughs> doing, you know? And it was like weird. I, I could, could I, I got caught doing everything. I had friends who were doing some of this other same, same stuff, but they never got caught. I don't know. I guess I was just really stupid, but uh, <laughs> so he kind of was watching this and he's always been very caring to me, but we've never really like, I don't know. We never really talked about it or, you know, we're close enough in that way to kind of uh, discuss all of it. It was mostly just me. Like you know, even even the decision to join the Marines was at that point that this is something I got to do. No matter nothing, nobody's going to tell me otherwise. You know, mm-hmm. so in some ways it was this kind of selfish decision as well. But you know, in service of something greater, I wanted to serve in an institution where the good of the group it matters more than the good of the individual. Like in the Marines, they don't care about your well-being. All that matters is the men and the mission. So you know, I wanted to serve in an institution like that, but at the same time, it was. It was rough on the family and even, you know, being an Indian again, my whole family in India was like, what is he doing? You know, (laughs) what? uh, um, Why is he joining this fighting for this other country, fighting for this president who's sending young boys off to war and all of that kind of stuff. But I think in at the end of the road, even my Indian family was very proud of me. I mean, every time I'd go back to India, they would want me to wear my dress blues for every party that we ever had, you know? Uh-huh. So <laughs> so they started to sort of appreciate. In fact, as a result of me joining, my Indian family started donating a lot more money to veterans charities in India, supporting veterans in India and realizing that, because you know, you probably know in India, they don't place the same amount of respect to veterans that they do over here. Uh-huh. There's not that kind of thank you for your service mentality. Um, but so that that really kind of changed their perspective that these, you know, where, wherever, wherever you fight, these are you guys fighting for the country and putting a lot on the line for it. So in some sense, it, in, in, the, in the long run, it, I think, made a good impact for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was a tough road to get there for sure. So, you know, having had this sort of uh, almost battle with your parents, you know, knowing that a lot of parents are, are listening to this, mm-hmm. um, what advice would you give to them based on this experience? You know, my parents always ask me that what could we have done differently to, to avoid you getting into drugs or anything like that. And I don't, I mean, I had the best parents I could ever ask for. They gave me a great, you know, upbringing, great childhood, best schools, everything I could. But I think with in their case, it, like the way to answer now is I don't, I don't blame them, of course. I take full responsibility for my actions. But what could have potentially changed is if they had gotten, in me, gotten me into rock climbing or let's say outdoor sports, which is now like a huge passion of mine, that would have changed my path. And to be honest with you, I, I might never have joined the Marines if I got into outdoor sports. So again, no regrets now. But I guess to the point is to listening to parents is – Oh, understanding the you know that everybody has this unique like my brother was a 180 for me right the outdoor sports wouldn't have been would, wouldn't have useful to him but to me it would have potentially gotten me out of drugs and it would have been to find a positive way to channel that high so looking at your kids like what what drives them and and figuring the ways to target that and uh, uh and giving giving them that space you know again i don't blame my parents because they didn't even know people rock climb for fun until i did it you know they were not exposed <laughs> to that world right so it's not their fault uh <laughs> but but that awareness now I have that I know that when I get, you know, when I, when my wife and I get kids that I'll be 
you know, I have a, a large uh, sort of awareness and, and experience of life that will allow me to bring that to my kids. But I think it's it's, it's finding that that key struggle, like what I like to call the worthy struggle, and really having them embrace adversity. You know, this is another thing I see a lot of parents in India too, especially if you're affluent. They try to give their par- kids everything, and you shelter them and you spoil them, and you're not helping them. You're only hurting them. And I see this with like all my aunts, all my uncles. They think they're helping their kids by giving them the world, but you're not. Give them that gift of adversity and find when you're young, you can experience that in meaningful, like in, in healthy ways that are not too risky, right? Like for me, it could have been going for ultra running. It could, could have been going for rock climbing. It could be anything, but let them suffer. Let them experience struggle because struggle is, is a true gift. And when you find, when you can embrace that, when you find value in it, it will, uh, it'll transform their life. And I think ultimately the collective family as well, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what had me join the Marines is I was actually seeking out a struggle. I wanted to experience uh, something hard, something challenging, and it I grew tremendously as a result of that, you know? So that's one thing, and I even do work with some parents. I always tell them, like, don't give your kid everything thinking you're doing them a service because you're absolutely not. And I'm seeing it all the time. I have little cousins diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and because from day one, they've been spoon-fed everything and, uh, and, and, you know, not been taught the value of struggle and the gift that, that it offers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm very curious, uh, what the perception of other people in the Marines is of, of seeing an Indian person join, because I I don't imagine it's a common thing. Like I (laughs) imagine you're just the total oddball in the entire group. And are there other Indians who are in the Marines or in the military, like tons of them? I didn't see a lot, of course, as you can imagine, but I did run to run into a Patel, and you know the Gujarati last name. Gujaratis don't traditionally join the military, so I, I did once run into, and my not, my last name, Nanavati, is also a Gujarati last name. So they yeah. people always say you're probably the only Gujarati dude in the Marines, but because uh, <laughs> it's a particular sect from region of India that does not do like military service or anything hardcore and intense like that. Yeah. So I didn't see a lot of uh, Indians for sure in the military, but it was actually a pro in many ways. I mean, I got praised in boot camp, which is very rare. Boot camp is like that initiation you don't ever get praised but a drill instructor once told me that you know you're not even from this country and you're doing more for this country than most people here so it was like a a sort of a badge of honor that i was this foreigner joining you know and i never experienced any genuine racism in the military but i always got called like the terrorist the haji i mean even when we were in iraq people every time we found bombs they were like dude not a body get a picture with you in the wire so we could have you know you're the terrorist so (laughs) so i had all these pictures of me pretending to make bombs while i was in iraq but uh, but i never experienced any genuine racism that was all kind of in play. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do this. Um, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about this idea of Firvana, where it came from, um, what sort of prompted it, uh, and then really start to dig into the science of it. And I think the, the place that I want to really start is with an evolutionary explanation of fear. Sure. So the 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 way the brain works in terms of fear is we have this 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 back of our brain which is the emotional brain or I like to call the animal brain and then there's the prefrontal cortex which is a human uh, rational and reasonable brain so anytime the brain encounters something unknown the first thing you know from an evolution perspective the brain is asking is this thing going to kill me or not which is why fear is this very primal emotion that we all experience and fear stress and anxiety neurologically are very very similar so you know put whatever word applies to you really in what's most applicable but 
evolutionary speaking, our brains are still designed for this ancient world, this cave, caveman-like world. And so inevitably, we get triggered by fear in anything and everything because our brain's not designed for this complex, this modern complex world. So any little thing that happens, you know, a, a computer can appear to be as threatening as a saber-toothed tiger, which is what our brain is still looking at. Okay, how can we survive? And that's why we do things like what's called a negativity bias, for example, where we focus more on what we don't have than what we do have. You know, and studies have shown people will people will do well, people will experience more pain at the loss of fifty dollars than joy at the desire. You know, at the at the prospect of gaining fifty dollars because negative. You know, evolutionary speaking, we want to be more focused on the potential threat, the saber tooth tiger or this thing around is killing us. Because if we miss a beautiful sunset, no big deal. There'll be another one the next day, right? But if we don't miss this, if we miss this threat, we could die and there'll be no more sunsets at all. So, so coming from that perspective, that fear is this very primal emotion that we're always having to deal with, and we have to realize that we don't control what first shows up in the brain. So neurologically speaking, you know, as I mentioned, there's this emotional brain and there's the rational brain. We don't control what first shows up in the emotional parts of a brain. So if I'm standing on the edge of a cliff and I feel fear, that's just my brain responding to this edge of the cliff, right? And the value in learning this is that we stop that this allows us to stop judging our emotions. The biggest myth and what led to this concept of fear von and why I wanted to tackle fear is that we often hear things like be fearless, don't be scared of anything, you know, uh, eliminate self-doubt, and all these things that tell people not to feel the emotion that they're feeling. But they are no bad or good emotions. They're only emotions and it's up to us to decide what we do with them. Mm-hmm. So that's why the first section of the book is called Awareness and Acceptance, where we get become aware of this sort of myth of free will, realize that how much we actually live in the subconscious state and we don't control what shows up there. But by accepting that, then we can say, okay, my brain shows up, you know, is showing up fear, but I'm not going to try to fight the fear. I'm just going to accept that it's there. And I'll give you an example. Like today, for example, my wife isn't here. I'm alone in the house in New Jersey and I still feel fear being alone in the house. And that's kind of crazy considering like the things that I've done. I've been to war. I've climbed mountains in the Himalayas. I've done a lot of very intense, scary things. But now here I am sitting alone in the house and I'll feel sometimes like very often fear and anxiety. And I used to be the kind of like not following my own advice. I used to be like, you know, stop. What, what's wrong with you? Stop being a baby. Stop like, you know, man up, all this kind of self-talk. And then until I re- started following my own advice and saying, okay, fear is just, is just showing up. I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to label it bad or good. I'm just going to be with it. Uh-huh. And by doing that, I allowed myself to channel that fear into the, into the things that I'm doing now, whether it be, you know, working on the book and marketing the book, promoting it and making really, truly trying to make an impact in the world. Yeah. Okay, so tons of questions come from that, as you might imagine. So I, I want to look at um, this fear response from two different perspectives. I'm really glad that you brought up your wife because I wanted to talk about it in the context of vulnerability and relationships because I think that's really scary for a lot of people. It is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I want to talk about it in terms of rock climbing as well because I think you and I both share this sort of love for an action-adventure sport. And you're right, like to think that, okay, you have a fear of being alone in the house and yet you've probably done crazy shit that doesn't even come close <laughs> – I've surfed some pretty big waves and, you know, flown down a mountain on a snowboard, yet there are things that are nowhere as near as terrifying that trigger a much more intense response in me. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> how do we, how do we, how do we manage that response in this, in, you know, in these situations? Because I remember, you know, I have something that you said in the book, you said the next time you experience any emotion that starts to control you and propel you into a, a downward spiral, become present with it, let go of any judgments you have about it, including labeling it good or bad, allow yourself to fully feel the emotion. So you understand why it's there. You will find it will soon pass by. Now, one of the things that I know is that 
we live in this very stimulus response driven world. Something happens and we make meaning of it, right? Like somebody says something to you or somebody doesn't say something to you and you give it a thousand different meanings and tell a bunch of different stories because you don't pause between stimulus and response. And I'm curious, how can we use your work to cultivate that pause? Yeah, that pause is the single, like that space between stimulus and response is, I mean, it's our destiny that will shape our entire lives. And and learning how to create that space, learning how to master that space is essential. So, I mean, a simple thing you can do, I go into this uh, this little five-step tool in the book called the LMNOP tool. And, uh, and it's really simple way to create that space between stimulus and response. So the first part of that L is label, label and language. So literally labeling the emotion. Neuro- neuroscience has shown that when we label our emotion, it reduces that activity in the emotional parts of our brain and increases activity in the parts of the brain related to focus and awareness. So immediately labeling the emotion can now say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm present to it. I'm aware of it. Now I can choose what to do with it. And that's that space between stimulus and response. So L is label. And the second part of that L is language. This is where you'd shift your body language into a confident pose. So I worked with a client who every time we'd get on Skype, he would be like slouching and really you know miserable. So immediately shift into that power pose. Amy Cuddy has a great TED talk about it where she shows how when you're in this power confident pose, it reduces cortisol and actually increases testosterone in the body. And the next part in this L and the M is the meaning where you actually ask yourself, like you said, right? We're all meaning seeking creatures. We're finding meanings to everything. So in this step, you're actually saying, what is the meaning that I've created to this event or this emotion? So with this client of mine who had the severe anxiety, he, every time he sat on his computer to write, he would have this meaning that nobody want to read his work and it was all garbage. And he also had a meaning to his anxiety. He made the anxiety mean that he was this weak, you know, person who was a coward and he'd never be successful like why is he feeling anxious on the computer so that but but he had to become conscious of that meaning first in order to do something differently with it mm-hmm. so that's the lm and the end part is where it's really really useful is where you simply say this is not me this is just my brain and i am not my brain and my brain is not me and this is really essential because we all define ourselves by our emotions right i mean i have this little cousin who i was mentioning who was struggling with, who was labeled by this therapist as as she had depression so now every time she felt sad she was like i am this person with depression like I have depression. That was a part of her self-identity as opposed to saying something like, you know, my brain goes to a state of depression from time to time, but I'm not my brain and my brain is not me. And so that's the end part. Not that, again, she's going to talk like that, but you get the point mm-hmm. <laughs> where you really say this is not my brain. No. So the O is you opt for a new meaning. And this is, again, where you start shifting that – you start rewiring the brain patterns. So you, so in this case, like my client with anxiety, he would say that you know the only reason I'm feeling anxious is because I care enough about my writing. Like I was terrified writing this book on fear because I wanted it to be something good. You know, I didn't want it to just put, something, put some garbage out there. As a result, I was nervous about producing that. So creating a positive meaning to these emotions. And finally, P is what's called purpose and preemptive strikes. And this is where you take one action in line with that higher purpose. And that, and you ha- in order to rewire the brain, you have to do something differently than you, than you usually do. So in this case, my client would just sit and write on his computer for five minutes, just five minutes. Initially, it was even two, just to do something differently because ordinarily his pattern was sit on the computer, anxiety, retreat from computer, and go watch TV. So we had to rewire the brain by going through this step. And the second part of that is what I call preemptive strikes. This is where you preempt prepare for obstacles you know will show up. So he knew that every time he'd get on the computer, he'd feel this anxiety. So he'd write down in detail, okay, at 3 p.m., I'm going to get on the computer. I'm going to go through LMNOP. I'm going to sit there and write for five minutes. So planning in detail for these obstacles you know will show up. And this is a very powerful, I mean, I use this all the time in my own life. It's a very simple, and again, each step is proven in neuroscience, but a very powerful way to build that space between stimulus and response so you can ultimately condition and you know consciously choose your response. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, well, I'm really glad you brought up the meaning piece because I, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Like I understand that intellectually, um, <laughs> and yet I find that I struggle with it at moments to, to really you know, um, feel it in my bones and live it in my life. You know, This is one of my favorite quotes from the book. You said, people often feel like the external reality determines our level of suffering, but as you have seen, none of these outside forces matter. What we do inside our minds, the conversation we have with ourselves, that's what shapes our reality. Our mindset determines how much we suffer. And what I found with that conversation in my mind is that it goes back and forth between meanings. It's kind of like, okay, this is a meaning that's, you know, much better. This is a meaning that's worse. And I'm wavering back and forth between these two meanings. Mm. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it absolutely makes sense. And it is, it's a hard thing to navigate. I think that, you know, this, not, the, it really boils down to practice and, and actually becoming more and more key, continuously practicing awareness and building that space between the stimulus and response. Like I'll give you a very powerful way I learned to do this that has transformed my life. So when I came back from the war, I struggled with survivor's guilt for a long time. I lost a very close friend of mine in Iraq before I even left. In fact, we were in the same unit together and we always volunteered to go to Iraq together. And one summer while I was vacationing in India, he left and he never came back. And I always felt like it should have been me that went out there and it should have been me that died instead of him. And this survivor's guilt drove me to a dark, dark place. I mean, I came back from the war and I struggled with alcohol to the point that I was on the brink of suicide. But today, that that guilt, I have found a new meaning to that guilt. That guilt is my most powerful ally. Actually, right next to me, I have this poster of my friend and me, and it says, this should have been you earn this life. And now I've created a new meaning to this one to this experience that once drove me to the, you know, the darkest corners of my soul, but now this meaning has something that is is driving me forward. It helps me focus on the impact I want to make. So that's that you know, that came as a result of a lot of awareness, a lot of practicing, being recognizing that this guilt is there and choosing to sort of bring up my demons. This is another hugely powerful exercise. I mean, talking about being alone that I also do is I've started practicing stillness because my greatest fear today is stillness. And But the more we engage stillness, the more we allow stuff to show up within ourselves, and then we can choose what we do with that stuff. So one exercise that I now practice is literally sim- just sitting there staring at a wall, eyes open, no painting, no music, no TV, nothing, and there's no stimulus at all. And I actually learned this from an endurance cyclist friend of mine. He does it for 24 hours and then goes riding for 24 hours. I can't do that yet. I'll probably lose my mind if I do it for 24, <laughs> but I'll do it for like an hour, and it's extremely challenging. I mean, first time I did this for 45 minutes, I thought my timer might be broken on my phone, right? So, <laughs> But it's challenging, but it's beautiful because it allows that stuff to come up and allows you to be with that, with whatever shows up, and then you can choose meanings to it. So I think practicing stillness, and we all run away from it, right? We are always busy on our phones, on our iPods, on our music, on our watching TV, all these things, even busy. I mean, even entrepreneurship, like if you're busy doing something positive, but in many ways, what I realized is that even these things that I was doing was positive, like ultra running, skiing across polar ice caps was in the past, it used to be a running away. So today I still do them, but I still, but I do them from a very different level of consciousness yeah. and doing these kind of practices like stillness allows you to, to, to see what shows up and then to choose an empowering meaning to it. So I want to talk about your extreme sports in, in a bit more detail, and I want to do two different things here. One, uh, I would like to talk about this idea of, of you know, Firvana and talk about how it plays out in the relationship with your wife, because I think that would be a really interesting place. So, um, you know, stories from that that you think people would benefit from hearing. And then, you know, I want to look at it through the lens of action sports, uh, because that's another area in which I, I feel, you know, I have a lot of questions about. Yeah. So in terms of uh, my relationship with my wife, it's funny. She actually coined the word Firvana, by the way. When she when she came up with it, I thought that was uh, pure gold and uh, and absolutely loved it. So she she's the sort of the birthed Firvana, the idea. But you know, it's interesting because my wife and me, you know, she we 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 talk a lot about like we we don't have kids yet, but we've been planning on it. And she's gone through some of her own personal challenges recently. And I think that what we've learned is that whatever shows up, like if I'm scared of um, you know the stressors of our marriage, because um, recently she's gone through some very low moments. I'm just trying to think of how to say it. So yeah, she's gone through some very low moments. I'll be very honest with you, where she was on the verge of suicide herself, and she was talking about her life ending, and it was really 
really challenging to say the least. And this was in the middle of all this book launch stuff. So it was quite a stressful process for her, for me, for all of us. But learning to be present to that, again, learning to be okay with it. And I, I know it's kind of a simple thing, but it's really not that much more complicated. Learning to be, say, okay, I, this is this is really hard. We're, we're really stressed out about it. But And not running away from it because, I mean, another thing to be honest with you is I broke my sobriety when that happened. You know, when my wife went through this really hard place, again, I don't blame her. I take responsibility for my actions. But in the cumulative stress of that versus and the work stuff and everything, I just I just broke and I lost it. And that to me is coming to once again realizing that it's easy to run away from these things, you know. But I think in the context of my wife and, and any challenge is just really being okay with stress, being okay with suffering, realizing that these things are not bad and they can be channeled into good. So it's the same thing now with my wife when she came out of this low moment, she's she's now out of it. I told her this is this is can be your greatest gift, you know, this suffering that you've been through can be your greatest ally as as, as long as we channel it into something meaningful. So I don't know if that kind of answers the question. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I don't know if that um, – <laughs> in terms of my relationship with my wife, so I don't actually get that a lot. So this is good and cool making me think about that. <laughs> I get it more from the in-stream sports perspective. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so I like that. That pushed me to think in a different way. <laughs> well, let's talk about it from the extreme sports perspective You know, because as a surfer you know, you might, and snowboarder, as you might imagine, this is of tremendous interest to me because I'm constantly thinking about you know, where is the limit you know, uh, yeah. to what I'm capable of and where do I push it because I know pushing it opens up a lot of other possibilities possibilities as well yeah it's a it's a fine line right like yeah. i used to actually free solo up rock walls with no rope uh, sure. until yeah until i promised my wife i would no longer do that that was one of our <laughs> one one agreement i made with her so it's a fine line and it's hard to say where that where that line is you know like i mean i know for example i want to go mountaineering i want to go climb everest one day uh i want to do win- winter mountaineering in the himalayas and these are the kind of things where i mean the line to push that is you know i mean it the uh, the level of risk in these sport is in in that in that venture is very very high so I just think it, it has to be balanced with everything that you process. Like practicing again, that some of these stillness and awareness exercises allows you to say, how far do I want this to go? Because you know now I'm married and that's why I stopped free soloing. My line of risk changed as a result. And when I get kids, I don't know where it will go, where it'll change as a result of that, you know? But constantly balancing action with awareness. So, I mean, that, that all growth is basically the cycle of action and awareness. So I take action, I get feedback from that. I exercise the awareness to decide the next one. But it's, a, I mean, it is a scary thing because you see the top of their game. I mean, recently, legendary mountaineers pass away. These mountaineers that I've been following for a while, that they were the best in their, you know, best in the world. Yeah. And they still, and, and the best still, you know, they, 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 they pay that price as well. So I don't know. It's a scary thing. I mean, I know with my wife, the best I can do is manage and mitigate the risk as much as possible. But like, like that's why I don't free solo anymore. You know, I thought that was, that was too much to, um, <laughs> wow, especially now that I'm married. And again, when I get kids, I'm not sure where the line will go. But I do know that I like doing these things. And partly why I now got into ultra running more is that it's, you know, it's a little less riskier in that sense, like in terms of a life-threatening risk. Uh-huh. But I like the suffering element of it. Like ultra running to me is beautiful because in one long run, you get to experience the entire microcosm of life. Like it becomes a microcosm for human life. You get the highs, the lows, and everything in between. And I like that element of ultra running. So it's a different kind of challenge that I've started to embrace recently. But I definitely know I want to venture back in the mountains. In fact, as soon as the book launches over, I'm uh, – I'm eagerly uh, fiending for my return to nature. I'm a little yeah. burned out on staring at a computer screen. <laughs> 
So uh, let's talk more about the the sort of draw to nature and, and, you know, why it plays such an important role in our lives. Like, you know, we've looked at it through the lens of fear. I want to look at it through the lens of what just kind of joy it brings to your life. And, and why is that? Like, why do why do we get such a, a thrill from these things? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, plenty of studies have shown how nature is very therapeutic for us and healing. But I think is, you know, nature is pure. Like there's no there's no judgments. There's no uh, there's it's just it's just this pure, beautiful thing that you get to be in. And uh, and I, I really love that about it. It doesn't you know, it, it doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about your well-being. Um and you know, and these, and when you put, when you push the line in nature, when you explore it in this, in these sort of quote unquote extreme ways, it gives you the sense of regaining control over your world. And it's kind of ironic because you know you don't control like in nature. The, you know, nature's undoubtedly nature at its worst will beat you up and will destroy you any day of the week, right? You know this from surfing. Mm-hmm. But same thing when I was in Greenland. I mean, I spent we, in Greenland. We were caught in storms for five days, and these storms were brutal. In fact, the following year, a British explorer died in one of those storms. So it's this weird thing because you get to practice control. So even though you don't have control in these words, you're forcing to exercise control, like setting up the tent every night, like doing these things, you know, opening up your stove, practicing, you know, uh, uh, boiling snow to, for water. You force to exercise control in, uh, in 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 your life when you're in these worlds. And not to mention that when you push the line there, it gets you, it forces you to bring up courage within yourself. And I think that's truly a beautiful thing. Like when you get to experience the sort of limitlessness that you have within you, that is, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful things I think that we can all experience. And in fact, you know, I think you, I'm sure you probably read Mihai Chick Mensihai's book, Flow, mm-hmm. The Psychology of Optimal Experience. He says, I mean, it's one of the largest studies and happiest in the world. He says that the best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur when a person pushes their body and mind and in, in in, in, to their limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. So nature becomes this playground for us to do that, to experience pure joy. And you get to, you know, you get all these again in Greenland. It was the same thing where one month, I, you know, experience the entirety of human life, like bliss, pain, misery, everything, you know, and, um, and it's beautiful. I think it's really, it's really, it's a really deeply spiritual and peaceful experience to get the experience, uh, to go through these in nature. Yeah. So as I'm sure you can relate. Oh yeah. Yeah. More than you can possibly imagine. Um, <laughs> So, you know, there, there's another part of the book where you talked about cognitive biases and you kind of touched on it earlier. You kind of alluded to the negativity bias. Let's talk about cognitive biases and, and how those impact our, our fear responses and situations. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So the negativity bias is one core core one, you know, that that I touch on. So cognitive biases are essentially the, these things that our our subconscious brain is doing to react and respond to life. So you know, other ones that there's like there's called the confirmation bias, or uh, which is essentially we, we filter out beliefs. So if if I if if I like in the case of politics, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you label yourself, and that and that label becomes your belief. Everything you do will will fall into that. You will find ways to justify that belief. So that's another one called confirmation bias. Another one is like referential thinking. So we process the world around us with based on references. So everything. So if I have, you know, in my book, I talk about my blender and, uh, the reason I love that blender because it's in reference to another one. So Professor Dan Ariely says that we're always looking at things around us in relation to others. So it's uh, so I reference only seven of the cognitive biases in the book, but there's about like twenty. There's a ton of them really. But it's really important to understand these because this is this gets you understanding why your subconscious brain is doing what it's doing. And the goal here is not to eliminate these cognitive biases because you can't anyway. Mm-hmm. You're going to do these things. You're going to be focused on the negative. But the goal is to reframe your to, to retrain your brain to have these cognitive biases work for you. So. We 
we talked a little bit about awareness and action, right? So yeah. once you rewire your conscious brain, then you want your subconscious to take over because the subconscious is faster. That's why we have habits, right? Habits uh, are, are, are operate automatically. This is what the cognitive, uh, cognitive biases do. So we want our subconscious to take over so we can move up and, and you know live our lives effectively. Like, I mean, it would be horribly inefficient to have to think about walking every time we walked, right? <laughs> right. So that that would be a very ineffective un- way to live our lives. So we, the goal is to channel consciousness and awareness to changing our subconscious brain and then letting that subconscious take over. And then we're going to have to re-exercise co- co- awareness and cognitive energy anytime we want to uh, achieve the next level of growth. So for example, coming back to my wife, like we went climbing once and my wife, you know, was terrified on the scramble that we were doing. I was not at all f- afraid. And it's not because I was, you know, braver than her. It's just that my brain had more references. It had been climbing, it had been free soloing. So when it was a scramble, my brain said, this thing is not going to kill me anymore. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need fear to show up. So my wife, it showed up for, for me, it did not. And so we can train our brain, our subconscious to respond to life the way we want it to by exercising awareness and channeling that into purposeful action. Uh, wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's interesting because, you know, when you're talking about the rock climbing thing, it me, makes me think about, you know, small surf days versus bigger ones. And after I've surfed a certain size, it's no longer, uh, it no longer elicits the fear response that it once did. Exactly, exactly. We learn to kind of train that subconscious response to fear um, and into anything, to stressors and anxiety as well. And so, I mean, even for me, I, I used to be terrified of Ferris wheels when I was a kid. So I was not the kind of person that I am today. It kind of worked its way up by engaging fear in different settings. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I want to ask one other question and then I want to talk briefly about sort of mental health related stuff around this. Um, You know, you had this idea of the five wise exercise to overcome fear. And I was wondering if you could walk us through that. Sure. So whenever you have like a fear that's sort of like um, a longer term fear, what I mean by that is there could be like the fear of jumping out of a plane where sometimes you just need to sort of take the leap, you know, metaphorically and literally speaking. But like, for example, the fear of writing this book was, you know, is this going to be any good? Are people going to think it's garbage? What if nobody buys it? Constant fear of feeling it, right? So a five whys exercise is it's a Toyota's technique where you find the one barrier and you dig deep into that five times. You ask why is the, you know, why to the first barrier. So for example, in my case, it was why does writing your book cause you fear and stress? So it takes a lot of time, focus and effort, which doesn't always lead to a result. So why is that scary? I don't know if it'll pay off. And then why is that scary? People might judge me, hate my ideas or leave bad reviews of the, of the about the book. And then I go deeper. So why does that scare you? And maybe I'll find that if I don't know, I don't know enough or I'm not good enough to be out there. So often actually when you do this five wise technique, I've, it's surprising how often it usually leads to a fear of not being good enough. Uh-huh. I think all of us have that to some degree and it shows up in various capacities. But when you engage that fear and when you dig deep into it, you can then do something about it, right? Like now in this case, I studied from authors like Tim Ferriss and Jack Canfield done on how to write a good book. I mean, I must have trashed about 100,000 words worth of work for the book to get to where it is now. But that was having that was a result of the fear and understanding the fear. Okay, that if I have all these things, let me understand it. Let me, can, let me deal with it. Let me figure out how to address this fear. What's the worst case scenario? Okay, if nobody buys the book, how can I prepare for that? So really, get, you know, breaking down the whole, all the all the steps from where I am now to where I want to be, all the fears that are in the way, and and processing and logically processing each one of those fears and uh, and and the action steps I could take to address them. So it doesn't always mean the fear goes away because it didn't. I was still terrified, but I was able to better channel that fear into action and ultimately now write something that I can truly say I'm proud of. Mm. Awesome. Well. I want to spend the last bit of our conversation talking briefly about depression because you mentioned, you know, being at the point of, of being almost suicidal. And I'm curious how you pulled out of it and what advice you would give to people who are in darker spots in their own sort of lives and journeys. 
Yeah, when you're in it, you know, it's it's hard. It's uh, like when you're at that lowest of the low, you don't it, the one thing I noticed too when I'm in that is it's hard to be around inspiring stuff. Like you have to sort of if you you know, if you're in a low moment, inspiring stuff only makes you feel worse about yourself. So I actually would consciously stay away from that and I had to work my way up to be a certain point of growth that I could now use inspiring stuff to kind of keep me fueled and motivated. So when you're really in that low moment, it's 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 the, the I think the most important thing you can do is let go of the judgments about it. So when I like I give you an example, I mentioned the survivor's guilt, but same thing with post-traumatic stress disorder. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, but I came to learn that just because I jump when there's loud noises doesn't mean that's a disorder. I mean, that's a very normal human response to war, right? I mean, I lived a, in a world where seven months were loud noise equals death. Same thing with crowds. I was I did not like crowds. It got me very anxious. So they this this was now used as a as a symptom to label me post-traumatic stress disorder. I was labeled by the Veteran Affairs Administration until I went through all this research and learned that, okay, this is not something bad. This is not a disorder. This is just a normal human response. So same thing with depression. Like when you're in it, you know, it's it's okay to feel it. In fact, I do a very conscious exercise now where I actually watch war movies. I watch scenes from war movies knowing that they'll tear me up. They destroy me and they make me cry every time I do this. But I'm doing this because I'm now consciously allowing myself to practice experiencing different emotions. And, and allowing those emotions to come up. So when you're really, really in it, it's just – I think it's the most important thing you can do is it's, – and it's not easy. I get that. But it's to not judge yourself for feeling these low moments. Allow yourself to be with it as hard as it sounds. Get some support so you can kind of get out of your own head about it because often we'll get trapped in our own head and all the meanings we're coming up with. So you know, get some support from family, from friends, from anything. And then you can allow yourself to be with those emotions and channel it into something. But you got to remember, like one thing I learned throughout this Fearvana process is if we don't seek out a worthy struggle, struggle will find us anyway. So as it found me when I was in my darkest moments, as it, anyone will experience when you're in depression. So you want to channel that into some worthy struggle. You know, happiness is this process of engaging life in that pursuing a meaningful challenge. So find that worthy struggle. As I was mentioning, my wife who was going through it, you know, realizing that this moment now, your low moment can be your greatest ally has been for me. I mean, it's what led to this Firvana and the impact we're now making with it. So trans, translate those, those, those low moments, your, your deepest, darkest, uh, you know, uh, the corners of your soul into a worthy struggle. And that worthy struggle won't be easy, but you'll learn to find joy in, in that struggle, which allow you to handle any struggle that life throws your way as well. Mm, wow. Um, well, I know you brought up the impact that you guys are having with this work, and uh, I want to finish by kind of hearing a little bit about that. And, you know, what, what are some of the surprises that have come from this that you didn't expect? One thing that's been interesting, actually, is how many people are struggling with stuff like alcohol and, you know, and, and like and how many people are really struggling with this in a way that I was not expecting. I mean, a lot of people have come up to me after since, you know, this is starting to grow. People come up to me and, hey, how did you do this? I'm really struggling with this. People I didn't think had drinking problems, you know, that's for one. Another is this giant misconceptions that we're all feeling about these words like fear, stress, anxiety, struggle. I mean, when you say them, you know. They, these words have a negative connotation. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was just speaking with this kid the other day. Uh, you know, just came out of college, has a great job. I think he's working with Goldman Sachs, one of those like you know, living a great job but keeping him busy. And he was, but he hated his job, right? He's making a lot of money, but he hated it. And uh, and he and he started how he wants to start his own thing. And and we were talking about how you know, obviously doing that is just not because it's your passion, quote unquote. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. And I still remember him said he said, so you mean there's no such thing as a stress-free life? <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and I, I like just the way. 
way he said it. And I said, no, there's not. But that's not a bad thing. I mean, you need stress. It's like when you work out, you put your muscles under stress to grow. And it's the same thing with the mind and the spirit. So these kind of these misconceptions about the easy life. And uh, and I had another person came up to me and said, so there's no such thing as an easy life. I just want easy. And inevitably, this person was struggling with depression and everything. So these that's been really challenging for me to see and how I'm really trying to reverse that tie that, you know, stop looking for easy. Easy is not the, just because it's easy is not the better path. And we, we see this as a society. I mean, collectively, every new piece of technology is, is trying to make our lives easier and easier, but easier is not better. So those are some of the things that I've been seeing. And, you know, speaking like, I mean, I spoke it in, in India to the to IIT, you know, uh, Indian Institute of Technology. Uh-huh. And this kid came up to me after and was like, you know, just two days before your talk, I was horribly depressed. I was struggling. I was, you know, anxious, uh, crying. And how this, this idea is that we were talking about finding this worthy struggle changed his life and uh, so it's really been shocking to see how, how much people are truly suffering as a result of some of these misconceptions that i feel are about the easy life and the quote-unquote good life and helping people find value in struggle i mean i actually learned that india has the highest student suicide rate in the world wow. which i found out as a result of all this so we're actually building a lot now in india to to make an impact for the kids out there uh, because yeah i mean you're seeing this you know the younger generation is really struggling and we're we're seeing mental health challenges all over the globe not just in India. Yeah. So um, what what is the impact uh, that technology has had on on mental health challenges, you know, things like social media, things like Facebook, like based on, on the research that you guys have done? Because, I, you know, again, I want to address this from the point of, you know, what do parents listening need to think about here? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's, you know, obviously they had their pros and not going to take away from that. But I think generally speaking, the technology is highly damaging because it's reinforcing this culture of instant gratification, you know, and now with virtual reality coming out, I mean, to me, that's a nightmarish drug. Like I know my kids are, and their friends are probably going to have virtual reality video games, but it's, I mean, even if you look at some of these virtual reality ads, I saw one of these ads and it was like showing this person sitting on a bus and she's looking kind of miserable. And then she's like, why, why, you know, why sit there and be miserable? Put on your little virtual reality headset and you know enter this new magical world and she's all happy now and that is awful like you're showing people how to run away from life to, to explore these things to find the easiest way out and virtual reality is like a, i mean it might as well be like dopamine and, and a drug you know you're actually literally injecting these these uh, or literally for, forcing these neurochemicals to be released in your brain when you do this so I think coming back to the point is that these technologies that we're looking to make our lives easier and easier is teaching this culture of instant gratification. And as parents, as kids, is to reverse that, to have people learn. I mean, suffer now and success later. You know, learning to that struggle leads to the growth. So I talk a lot about in the book is that the single most important skill you can develop in life is a positive relationship to suffering. And you can put that whatever way you want. You can call it embracing challenge, uncertainty. I like to say suffering because suffering is a very harsh word. And then if you can suffer well, then struggle and all those other things doesn't sound so bad. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can, and you can train the brain to, to value suffering now. And like, that's why I love ultra running. I mean, it's hard. I mean, everything worthwhile I've done in my life, at least once in my life, I have thought about why, how much I hate doing it and why I want to quit from writing this book to Greenland to, uh, to being in the Marines, you know, but learning that the suffer now success later is, is just a huge thing to, to, uh, to reverse some of these sort of instant gratification technologies we're seeing keep coming up and more, more and more and, and, you know, and helping to, or trying to make our lives easier. That's not a good thing. (laughs) Wow. Um, well I can, I can see now why Jamal referred you to us as a guest. This has (laughs) been really, really phenomenal. So I have one final question, which I know you've heard me ask, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I love that. I think it is the 
the relentless desire to push your line, push your limits, your mind, body, and spirit to continued growth. And uh, that means engaging challenge. You know, I think when you, when you do that, like you'll see pro athletes and there's this this willingness to never stop, to never uh, to, uh, reach that new level of suffering, as I we talked about, is engaging consciousness to then create habits. But like, I think that is that relentless desire and that the, the willingness to say, until the day I die, I can keep growing in every single way, mind, body, spirit, business, financial, every single way is uh, is truly what makes us unmistakable. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, where can people learn more about you, your work in the book? Fearvana.com. So you can find me there and, and reach out to me. Anything I can support with, is, it'd be an honor and pleasure to help. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.